nice to know that she wants to stay and be with Pastor Brent. <laughs> Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, and I'm going to read different sections from the text this morning. I'm reading from the NIV, verse 3, Acts 1. After his suffering, meaning Jesus' suffering. After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them, to the disciples, and to those that were with the disciples, and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Remember, it's a command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It probably seems difficult for us to wrap our heads around this, that in the, in the days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, up until the time that he was ascended, and there are 40 there, that the Bible reminds us, the writer here is Luke, and Luke reminds us in his letter that Jesus had to spend some time convincing people that he was alive. Now, that just seems kind of contradictory. I mean, if you're standing there, you're saying, I'm alive. At the same time, you have to remember this. For the most part, it is an outrageous claim to suggest that somebody who was dead is alive again. That is an outrageous claim. The Jewish nation had experienced with extraordinary, miraculous things that God did through his people and for his people. You can talk about the Elijah thing up in the whirlwind and ascending into heaven. You can talk about the miracles that he did where ponds that were poisonous and would kill you were all of a sudden made sweet and you could drink it again and, and, and ad infinitum, right? There's all kinds of miraculous things. But when Jesus is crucified and there's that time period where he isn't risen yet, the disciples, his followers, are all hidden in their homes behind closed doors. And if you want to read about that, read the Gospel of John chapter 20. And there are people like Didymus, there are people like Thomas that say things like this, you know, unless I see him, unless I touch him, unless I can put my hand or my finger, you know, in a side where the, where the, the spear uh, pierced him, I'm not going to believe. Even the disciples 
His closest followers, his friends, even they weren't convinced that he was going to rise from the dead. And so it takes a while for that information to kind of flow out. It takes a while for Jesus to have face-to-face encounters with his friends and with others, for them to finally get the idea that, okay, he's here, he's alive. The things that he talked about that we didn't always catch right away have come to pass. Jesus is risen. And so the writer here, Luke, takes a few minutes just to remind us about that, that there wasn't this kind of run to belief and embracing Jesus it wasn't like there were thousands upon thousands that, that, that saw him in these early days and were following him. When we get to the next chapter, we remind ourselves that there's still only 120 in the upper room. Just 120. And so there's a process that is about to take place. And we can understand that even though they are very excited that he is risen, that he is alive, that he is with them, here's what they're interested about. Again, verse 6, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're Jews. It's a Jewish Messiah. They think it's about the nation of Israel. They think it's, it's about God's timing and that the, king, the kingdom of old under David and Solomon, when it was at its zenith, the golden age, is going to be returned to them in their time. And Israel, through the work of Jesus, is going to be, again, the apple of God's eye, the center of God's attention. And even the mighty Romans are going to be thrown off cast away, defeated. That's what they're interested in at this time. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's their focus. They are still interpreting the facts through a Jewish lens that calibrates itself to the promises given to Israel in the Abrahamic time, and under the Mosaic Covenant as well. They are not really ready for a new thing. They're not really ready for this change yet. And so in the midst of their queries of asking, hey God, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He replies in verse 4 and 5, and then again in verse 8, that that's not what he's going to do but that he is going to send the Holy Spirit and he is going to undo them with power and they are going to be witnesses of his. And so after saying that once in verse 4 and 5, you get the question, are you going to restore the kingdom? You get the question asked again before he talks about the outpouring of the Spirit in verse 8 about, look, don't worry about that stuff. That's not the focus right now. So the question is this, what is the focus? If the focus isn't the restoration of the kingdom of Israel, if that's not what we're supposed to be focused on, what is it that we're supposed to be focused on? And I think that's a really important question, not only for this first century believers, 
but I think it's an important question that needs to be answered properly for 21st century believers because I think this is, this is something that you and I have to ask ourselves and answer continuously, not just once a year, uh, not just once in a while, but, but, but regularly, and I don't know how regularly that would have to be, but, but regularly, in order to make sure that the church is focused on the things that it's supposed to be focused on, that we're about the Father's business and not about a whole lot of other things that m maybe aren't as significant to God as we think they are. So here they are wondering about the kingdom of God. And he says to them, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. John the Baptist baptized you in water, but I'm going to baptize you or I'm going to immerse you with the Holy Spirit. God, are you going to establish the kingdom of Israel? No, I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to empower you with the Spirit. I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And you're going to go out from here and you're going to be my witnesses. In fact, it's so important that you do that that I don't want you to go anywhere right now. I want you to stay in Jerusalem. Don't go anywhere until I've given you the equipment that you need to go and do the things that I want you to do. So we know that they've just come off Passover. We know that Jesus has just been crucified and he's going to be with them for 40 days and then there's a 10-day gap and then there's the Feast of Pentecost. And so basically what Jesus is saying to these disciples is I want you to hang around in between the two feasts. Normally what would happen to many of them that they would come in for the Passover and then they would go back to their homes, especially those that lived relatively locally. And then they would come back again for the Feast of Pentecost because it was one of the three feasts that all of the men were supposed to show up for. But he says to them, look, don't go home, stay right here. And so they do. They stay for 40 days until Jesus is ascended and they, in a sense, they just hang with him. And in 40 days, I'm sure there's lots of information that's shared back and forth, lots of questions being asked by the disciples. And I think for the most part, you know what I think they liked? I think they just like being with Jesus for 40 days. You know what that's like, right? You have a relative that, uh, that you love, and they live far away, and they come in, they fly in, or they drive in. Maybe it's Christmas, maybe it's Thanksgiving, or it's a summer break, and they come in. And for the first couple of days, you just sit around the, the supper table or the coffee table, and you're just catching up, right? And just back and forth, and boy, it's good to see you. I haven't seen you for a while. What's been going on? And, and at the end of the day, it's not really about the conversation. You just like being with them, and you've missed them. And it just feels good to have them sitting in the room across from you, and you, 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 know, you kind of get a little nostalgic about the good feelings that comes from that. I think that's exactly what's going on here. I'm not sure that these guys are really other than, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I'm not sure if they're interested in doing anything else than just sitting with Jesus. This is good. This is really good. They don't know, of course, what we know, that he's eventually going to ascend. But for the 40 days, I'm sure it's the best 40 days of their life. It's the quietest 40 days of their life. It's the most enriching days of their life they're just having a really good time being with Jesus but in the midst of all of this Jesus understands that his time is limited and he wants to let them know something 
Not just that they're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, but the purpose of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is that they would go and be witnesses. Now, for those of you that know a little bit of Greek like I do, just enough to be dangerous, this word is really translated from, from the word martyr. Okay, it is, doesn't mean that, you know, just that, hey, you're going to be out there telling people about me and everybody's going to love you for it. It actually refers to the word martyr, that you folks will be martyrs for me which suggests a little bloodletting. So maybe that's why it kind of went in one ear and out the other ear, and they didn't maybe hang on to that a whole lot. But to clean it up, Jesus is saying, look, you know that I'm alive now, and you need to go out and tell other people that I'm alive now, but don't do it until you've got the power to do it, meaning the Holy Spirit. So he is starting to let them know, to fill them in, on the mission of the church. But here's another thing that they don't know. They don't know church. They don't understand church at all. Jesus uses the word ecclesia, which is the Greek word for our word church, a couple of times. It's recorded a couple of times in Matthew. And he just kind of throws it out there that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And in another sentence, in another time, it's about church discipline and about the function of the church. But he never explains ecclesia. But what he is doing here is he is forming his body, his church, to go out and share the name. But these people are Jewish and they're thinking Israel, kingdom national pride. Jesus is saying, I'm going to create something brand spanking new, and they don't know this yet, that it's going to have Jews and Gentiles, one people in my body, church, and you're going to go out and tell the whole world about me, starting in Jerusalem, going into all Judea, even to the Samaritans that you don't like, and guess what? To the outermost or to the ends of the world. So he's sharing this information, and it's a lot for them to take in, but he's going to be letting them know that what's going to make them the church isn't this. It isn't their cultural heritage. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in them. They are going to be baptized into the body of Christ. They are going to be filled with the Spirit, endued with power. And it is that Spirit that is going to make them this one body, the church, and empower them to do the work of God. But they don't understand church at this time. We are told historically that the word ecclesia, again, the English word we, we know as church, basically was a word that was common back in the Roman and Greek days. It means this, to be called out. Now, generally, we've interpreted that with a little bit of New Testament help, to be called out of darkness into his wonderful light. And that is true. But that's not what this word meant. Back in the days of Roman and Greek society, the word ecclesia, again, our word church, just simply meant called out. In other words, if there was going to be a public meeting in a Roman city, in a Greek city, about something that affected the community, something political, something otherwise, that there would be a, 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 an announcement made through the streets of the city, pardon me, and that... They would be called out of their homes, out of their places of business or, or where they were living, to gather somewhere in the center of the city 
to talk about what the news was. It was it economic news, was it political news, was it military news? And so it simply meant this. It just meant a gathering of those that were called out of their homes to discuss something that was affecting them in their local community. They were called out. This word then is eventually used, especially by the Apostle Paul, to speak about us as the called out ones. Called out for a purpose. What's the news? It's the good news of Jesus Christ, and we are called to be witnesses of him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the outermost parts of the world. That is the primary function of the ecclesia. You as a called out one, me as a called out one, of the church is to be witnesses for him. Are we good with that? That's our primary calling. Again, as church folk, as called out ones, we do all kinds of things. But the primary mission, the primary focus is to let other people know about Jesus. Now, I say that deliberately because of this. It's because in the, in the day-to-day life of church people and church leadership, There are lots of things that we do, lots of things that we deal with, lots of events and programs and ministry and people stuff, right? All kinds of stuff. And if you're on a leadership team of some kind, you are aware of that. That sometimes it seems like church life actually is quite complicated, perhaps a little bit more complicated than you would like it to be sometimes. And sometimes in the complications of all of the other things that the church or church people are involved in, we lose track of what the primary mission is. And that's for you and I to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to tell other people about Jesus. Oh, we go to meetings and we go to services and we give and we've got building programs and we've got youth programs and kids programs and building committees and all of that kind of stuff. And I'm not, I'm not trying to besmirch any of that. But it is amazing that in the busyness of all of the important things that we feel that need to get done, sometimes, sometimes the last thing that we're doing is telling other people about Jesus. And we have to be careful, folks. And again, I don't know how often you have to remind yourself about that or how often I have to remind myself about that or how often I have to remind you about that or how often you have to remind me about that. But we've got to keep reminding ourselves about that. Jesus could have talked about a lot of things in the first 40 days. He knew he was ascending, but he said this, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and you're going to be my witnesses. That's job number one. And all the Ford people said? Right. That's job number one. Now, I know we know that. I know we know that. But are our lives, are our lives disciplined to the point where that's actually happening? In the midst of all of the other things that we got going, privately and corporately as a church body. One of the best ways to measure that is this. When was the last time I talked to an unbeliever about Jesus Christ? Not when was the last time I went to a meeting. Not when was the last time I went to church. Not when was the last time I gave in the offering. Not when was the last time I went to a Sunday school picnic. 
or a worship retreat. When was the last time I told somebody that didn't know anything about Jesus about Jesus? Like, that's fair for all of us. Because that's the heart of Christ, right? He came, suffered, bled, and died. We shared the communion emblems today. And the whole idea was that he would give his life, the Bible reminds us, as a ransom for many. And he empowers us to go out and tell other people the good news that we've already received and are so grateful for, Jesus can be your Savior and your Lord. There's nothing better than that. That Jesus is my Lord and Savior. But we also have to remind ourselves, especially as we're heading the direction that we are, that we're going to be very busy with external things and structural things. And the heart behind it is to be the best church that we can be. But to be the best church we can be, even after everything is renovated and pretty, we have to remind ourselves, right, that all of that is for the purpose of somehow helping us to be better presenters of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Utilizing the space and the money and the ministry and the gifts that we have to do that here. But I think more importantly is the work that we do beyond the building, folks. Because most of our gospel sharing is out there. It's not in here. It's out there. It's at your workplace. And maybe amongst family and friends that you know that don't know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. And that's the primary goal of the church. Jesus is recalibrating this group of believers that don't even know that they're going to be part of the church. Don't understand what it is to be part of the body. That's going to become clear to them when the Spirit is poured out. But at this time, they just think that they're Jewish followers of Jesus Christ, concerned about their nation and being restored because they've been an oppressed and suppressed people for generations. And that's their goal. Let's get Israel to the top of the, the mountain again. Not let's tell people about Jesus. Now you would say, well, how can that be? How can these people that have been hanging around Jesus now and recognize that he's alive, that he's been raised from the dead, how is it that they can still not be sure about what the calling is? It's because they were never sure. Jesus was throwing hints at them through at least the latter half of his life on the earth. He would talk about, the Bible says, the kind of death that he would suffer. And we got this from the disciples. Duh. What? Peter says, you know, Lord, there's no way. There's no way you can't die. And Jesus says to him, get, me, get behind me, Satan, right? Because you don't have the mind of God with this. You don't understand what, what God is doing. I have to come. I have to suffer and die in order for the world to be saved. Not just for Israel to be saved. Not just for Israel to have a chunk of land in the Middle East. And to say, hey, look, the promises have been fulfilled from Genesis 15 and 18 to Abram. But there's a world that needs to be saved. Gentiles as well. Israel, you were saved and made a holy nation in order to be a light to the Gentiles. You failed as a nation, so now I've got a new idea. It's called the church. We can't fail, folks. There's no plan B. It's every generation until Jesus comes. So, I'm doing this sermon series, and the focus is going to be this, is the church is at its best when? And I'm going to take you through significant portions of the book of Acts, 
And for the most part, I'm going to focus on one thought from the chapters that I deal with. And ask yourselves to remember this. The church is at its best when. When are we really being the church, doing the things that God has called us to do? In Acts chapter 1, I want you to remember these things. The church is at its best when we are empowered by the Spirit and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's when the church is at its best. Again, all kinds of things that we do, many of them significant things. I don't want you to think that if you're doing something else some of the time as a Christ follower that your time is ill-spent. I don't want you to think that. There are other things that matter. But the primary focus, right? The primary focus has to be lost lives. It has to be. Or we're not being the church. So the church, it's at its best when through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are witnessing about Jesus Christ. Verse 3, after his suffering, he showed himself to these people and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. There was a purpose to that because their message was to go out and say to other people, he's alive. He's not just crucified. He didn't just hang on a cross. He's alive. Communion, again, keep doing this until I return. He's coming again. He's alive. The reason why we as Christ followers are excited about gathering on Sunday is because we're not paying homage to a dead person, but we recognize that there is a soon coming king. He is alive. And in the meantime, we have our generation to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ to remind them that he's alive. He's victor over sin, death, and the grave. There's no need to leave it, live in fear. He's alive. You can never underestimate how important the fact that these 120 saw Jesus alive for themselves in order to begin their ministry. Amen. Don't overlook this in, in, in this verse when you're reading chapter 1. They sat with them, they chatted with them, they ate and they drank with them for 40 days. When he did ascend, and they kind of get hung up in the moment, and the, the angels say, hey guys, why are you just kind of staring up into the sky? And the angels remind them that this same Jesus that you saw go up like that, guess what? He's returning. Amen. But they're going to be busy in 10 days when the Spirit is poured out upon them. And so he's alive. They were convinced of that. There was no way any kind of persecution from Rome or anybody else was ever going to unconvince them that he was alive. He was right there. We saw him. We touched him. We prayed with him. We laughed with him. He's alive. They had proper focus. In your life as a Christ follower, not just as a church, not just as a church body, maybe you're a new Christ follower here, but you have to remind yourself this, that it's so important for you to have proper focus right from the beginning. Just as they did collectively, you need to individually. And your proper focus is this. It begins with, he's alive. And I need to tell somebody. He's alive, and I need to tell somebody. Proper focus. Their Savior was Jesus. Their Lord was Jesus. And their message was... Jesus suffered and rose from the dead. They were the messengers. Jesus was the message. 
Jesus reminds them, and it's recorded again, you will be my witnesses. Not you should be, not you could be. Do you want to be? It's you will be my witnesses. We are not on message if our message is anything but we are his witnesses. We're the messengers. He's the message. They are told that they will be his messengers at home, next door, the county, and the world. They are told that they will be the witnesses of Christ, both his suffering and his resurrection to the whole world. They weren't waiting for a physical kingdom. They're not waiting for the Romans to be overthrown or for Jesus uh, to be riding on a white horse as a conqueror through the streets of Jerusalem or Rome for that matter. They are to wait to be filled with the Spirit and then go do this, but wait for the Spirit to baptize them for them to receive power. Focus is Jesus. The message is Jesus. His death, burial, and resurrection. Done in the power of the Spirit. Remember this. Don't do a thing until you've got the power to do what needs to be done. Don't do a thing until you've got the power to do what needs to be done. Jesus said, wait, wait. He ascends. He's gone for 10 days. Nothing much is happening. They go to the Feast of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. They go to the Feast of Pentecost because they're Jews, and it's the next you know, holiday for them, the next festival, the next time of worship as a nation. And they go there, and we know the story that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. Some of them speak in strange foreign languages. The people are shocked. They ask, Pete, Pete, what's up about this? And he's, Peter takes them all the way back to Joel chapter 2, and he says, hey, this is what the prophet Joel spoke about that your sons would dream dreams and, and people would prophesy, daughters, women, old men, all kinds of spirit activity would take place. And what you're seeing on that day of Pentecost is the fulfillment of Scripture, not just Jesus' words from, you know, 10 days ago, but all the way back to people like Joel, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, that God was going to pour out a spirit and one of those ways would be through strange languages unlearned languages all of this being a sign a physical sign that God was pouring out his spirit and in Acts chapter 2 the next chapter tells us at the end of it that thousands were saved but for that 10 days until they were empowered until the Holy Spirit baptized them they are just awaited out but once the spirit came unleashed not just the 12 not just Peter but all of them don't do a thing until you've got the power to do what needs to be done because there will be lots of opposition hell and earth is going to be unleashed upon them but through the power and only through the power of the Holy Spirit will they overcome you can't do this with intestinal fortitude folks it's not just, well, hey, you know what? I, I'm going to do my best with my own ability to tell as many people as I can about Jesus. And I'm going to do my best that when people oppose me or if there's some kind of spiritual opposition to me, I'm going to do my best through the flesh to kind of plow through all this stuff. 
Jesus says, no, I don't want you to do that. I want you to wait. I want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you can take on anyone and anything with the message that Jesus is alive. Let me close. The church is at its best when we're doing our job. Telling others about Jesus and doing that in the power of the Holy Spirit. There are many things the church will become involved in. That you and I will become involved in. To help the church function. But our primary mission is always to tell others about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in the power of the Spirit. The church is at its best when it's on mission and on message in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus wanted clarity on the message and the power in which it was to be accomplished. Folks, dear saints, we are not caterers, country club members, or carnival rowdies. We're a church. We're the called out ones. We've got a job to do in the power of the Spirit. When we lose focus, we descend into chaos, eternal strife, opinions, distractions, and sin. Instead of a people empowered for redemptive purposes, we become a people of self-interest and interpersonal struggles. More to say on that when I get to chapter 6. The church, this church, all churches are at their best when they know what their job is and that they do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The church is at its best when we make Jesus known everywhere in the power of the Spirit. Let's stand and let's pray. Folks, I know there's one big meeting to follow.